I bring you greetings from your brothers and sisters in Christ from New Covenant PCA in Spearfish. I'm grateful for this privilege to be called upon by the Lord to minister the word to you. Are you able to hear me if I talk that softly? Do I need to speak up a bit more? Is that better? Okay, I'll try to talk a little louder than I may be used to. Let's continue to worship the Lord, however, together by turning to Genesis chapter 8. I would remind you that this is an act of worship when God's people sit and receive his word in faith. So Genesis chapter 8, I will read the text in its entirety. I'll give you a moment to turn there. This is the reading of God's holy word. It is holy, it is perfect, it is true, it is authoritative and sufficient. Receive it now in faith. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated, and in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month, and the 10th month on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of forty days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven, and went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. In the six hundred and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters are dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month and the twenty-seventh day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm upon the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. The grass withers and the flower fades, for the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray once more and ask him for help. Almighty God, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you that you've preserved it throughout time for the sake of us, your people. And that you had this moment in history in mind from before eternity began. And so, Father, we thank you that you've gathered us. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would dwell in our midst. And as the word is preached, 
I pray, Father, that you would work in us. Bless us to understand your truth. Your word is truth. And sanctify us in it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to assume a little bit of knowledge here. Um, I trust that for many of us, the accounts, the historical account of the events of Noah's life are probably some of the more familiar events in history to most people, and I would guess all of us here this evening. And um, one thing I would point out to you about the events of Noah's life, I think it's a fairly easy assumption to make as I begin, that when you consider the events in a more overview sense, the events of Noah's life surrounding the flood, I think, are a clear prototype of salvation. That God, by his grace alone, through Noah having faith alone, God saved him from the judgment that came. All mankind, God has already affirmed more than once here in Genesis 6 and 7, that mankind deserves the judgment of God. And the flood waters that came upon the earth to wipe off the people off the face of the earth was the judgment of God, a prototype of the final judgment to come. And Noah has been spared from that. So on the one hand, one thing that we ought to understand, and I'm guessing that this is the thing that is more readily understood about salvation. Salvation, on the one hand, is being delivered from death and judgment. Salvation, on the one hand, is being saved from the condemnation of God that we rightly deserve. And it is a beautiful thing that we would be spared from God's wrath because it's poured out upon the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's not all that salvation is. That's where Genesis chapter 8 comes in. And I'm doing really more of an overview of the whole chapter. I'm not going to consider every detail, though I'll try to walk through the text as a whole. But just note at the outset here that Noah has been saved, just as salvation is offered to us by God's grace through faith in Christ. But Noah's salvation did not stop at the end of chapter 7. The account of Noah's salvation continues here into chapter 8. And I think it's a very significant lesson for us to be reminded of this evening. And so let me show you the theme of it as it's introduced in the second half of verse 1. So I will read the whole verse just to put it before you, but I'll be focusing on some of the language of the second half of it. It says, But God remembered Noah. So salvation is God's grace alone, you see. God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. There's a few things to note here about the language that's being used. When you see the word wind there in the ESV, and perhaps it's translated differently in yours, the word wind, the word wind translates the Hebrew word ruach. Perhaps that will be familiar to you. But the Hebrew word ruach is the word that's also translated as spirit elsewhere, and perhaps very frequently it is. So you could put it this way, and maybe a study Bible you have would point this out. God made a spirit, the spirit, blow. And notice this other language, blow over the earth and the waters subsided. Go into verse 2 with me, following some of this language. The fountains of the deep, the windows of the heavens were closed. Rain from the heavens was restrained. I'll stop there. Does the language of these first two verses remind you of anything? I think it's meant to Especially for, he for Hebrew speakers, this would have rung the bells, I think, of everyone that heard Genesis chapter 1, 
verses 1 and 2. I believe there's a very intentional connection. I invite you to look there with me. It says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the ruach of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Earth, waters, heavens, spirit. All the same concepts, all the same vocabulary brought here, brought to bear right here. And I'm convinced that what it does is introduces us this major overarching theme of everything that follows. What Noah is being brought into, he's being saved from death and judgment, but being delivered on the other side to a new creation, a renewal of all things that God had once made good. And it's this theme that I want to unpack just a bit, showing you the language from the rest of it. Um, pardon me ahead of time, it's sort of a lot to take in at once, so I'm sorry if I um, seem a little distracted. I may forget things here or there, but I hope you'll see the point in the end. Verse 3, if you continue, it says, The waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. In the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest in the mountains of Ararat. I'll pause there. So in verses 1 through 4 that I've read, what's happening is God is restoring some of that original order that he first made. The windows of the heavens are now shut. The fountains of the deep are now being restrained. There is an, a renewed separation between the waters that are above from the waters that are beneath. Likewise, when it says the waters are receding, this is restoring when God gathered the waters into one place on this earth, separating and creating dry land, a work that he completes here in this new creation in verses 13 and 14. If you would look there, in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, behold, the face of the ground was dry. Again, I'm convinced this language is meant to call to mind that first creation week. This is a restoration, a new creation. And of course, you can glance through verse 5, but let me jump your attention to verses 6 through 12, that paragraph. Now, I confess to you, it's an odd one. I don't really get it, um, but I can say a few things to you, and I'll suggest them to you for your own further study. I encourage you to be Bereans in this one. Don't take it for granted. But let me point out what I think are a couple of things that we're meant to understand. Notice in verses 10 and 12, the repetition of seven days. I don't think it's any coincidence that that's the, time, that's the, the space of time Noah took in between sending out this dove. And I'll say more about the dove in just a second. But it's mentioned in verse 10 and verse 12. Remember, the first creation week was done in seven days. It was all brought to completion. Make a comment about the dove. Now, I have a hunch, but I can't be too firm on it. This is especially where I suggest you don't just take and run with my words. But here, this dove, I have a hunch. If you look back at Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, I want to make another note about the language here that you may already be familiar with, though it's not readily apparent in our ESV translations. Verse 2, let me read it again of Genesis 1. It says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit, the Ruach of God, was hovering over the face of the waters. Something interesting to note. That Hebrew word translated there as hovering is a word that's also translated as fluttering. 
It's used elsewhere in scripture of a bird fluttering over her nest, over her young. Is that an intentional connection to this dove flapping back and forth over the face of the waters just as the spirit fluttered over the deep at the beginning of creation, perhaps? But I find it very curious, and I suppose you probably will too, that when the spirit descended upon Jesus at his baptism, what form did he take? Coincidence? Maybe. I doubt it. In any case, if nothing else, the clear point of that paragraph is this, when in verse 11, what is it? Yes, in verse 11, when the dove brings back a freshly, a freshly plucked olive leaf, that's new life. The earth is no longer a void of death as it was just a few verses ago. New life is beginning to sprout. This is a new creation. If you would now uh, jump your attention to verses 15 through 17, we'll reread those verses. Again, thinking of it along this theme of new creation. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and creeping, everything and every creeping thing that creeps in the earth that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. I trust that those of you familiar with the first chapter of Genesis will hear all that same language coming to the forefront right here. Note as well in verse 19, it says, Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. I'm suggesting to you that that is reflective of when God created everything according to their kinds. And now the earth is being repopulated with life according to their families everything emerging from this ark, from death into life. And then if you look at chapter 8, uh, verse 22, so the last verse of the chapter, one other thing to point out as far as this theme goes, generally speaking. While the earth remains seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall, shall not cease, a clear echo of what God did on day 4 in Genesis 1:14, where God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens, to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. I hope the main theme is apparent. But let me read to you just a bit more. I didn't do it at the beginning because I wanted you to have consciously have this concept in mind when I did it. Look with me at chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Obviously, there are going to be some significant differences from what God did in chapter 1. But note the striking similarities to the original creation. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I, as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Team on the earth and multiply in it. I realize going through this much text is sort of like drinking from a fire hydrant, but the drops that I want you to swallow is this. Here's the theme. New creation. 
all things being made new, restoration, new life. So to bring it back to where I began, this is our understanding of the gospel. It's not just that you're saved from hell, though it is that, and praise God that it is. It's not just that you're spared from eternal death and damnation. It is that, and praise God that it is. Salvation is not just that I'm no longer condemned, but now I have new life. Noah was not saved in the ark, floating over the floodwaters for all eternity. Noah was spared from that judgment and brought safely through to the other side that he might emerge in this new creation. That's a greater fullness of the gospel. And that's something that we really need to remember and to cherish. Um, for, for people that have not yet embraced the gospel, sometimes I wonder if part of the reason, there are probably many, if part of the reason why people don't embrace the good news is because they only see part of it. They don't realize just how good saving grace is. It's not just that I won't go to hell, but that I'll go to the new creation, to a new heavens and a new earth, and dwell there forever with my Savior. And so for you, Christian, just urge you to meditate on these truths, meditate on the fullness of the gospel, and learn to relish all that God has done, not just small bits of it. Now, having done that, you think I'm done. I'm not. There are two characteristics that I believe this passage, Genesis chapter 9, as a whole, taken in context, two characteristics at least that the passage presents to us about the new creation. Two very important things for us to understand because I don't want us to have a vague notion of the eternity to come. I want us to be a bit more specific as I think the text calls us to. So two characteristics of this new creation, first of all. And this is really taking a lot more text in at once. So I'm, I'm trying to lean on hopefully what you have is prior understanding of these chapters in Genesis. But the first characteristic that should be evident to us is that the new creation is the place where righteousness dwells. And if that's um, not something that seems immediately apparent, let me show you a few things. If you look back in chapter 6, again, we're just doing overview stuff here this evening. But in chapter 6, let me begin reading in, chap in, in verse 5. And then I'll go, I believe, through verse 9. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor, or perhaps your translation says it better, found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. So then in chapter 7, when the flood actually came in time and space, what God did was wipe off the face of the earth that total depravity of mankind. The, the mankind described as wicked and evil. Really, if you understand, it's a description of you and me by nature. God wipes off the causes of wickedness from the face of the earth, and all that remains is Noah, this righteous man, and his family with him. The new creation 
is the place where righteousness dwells. There is no wickedness there. And there are all kinds of cross-references that we could read, but let me just turn you to one, and I'll, I'll warn you, um, if you thought we flipped around a lot, we're doing it a lot more here in just a bit. But in Revelation 21, I'd encourage you to look there with me. Everything's sliding on this pulpit. There we go. In Revelation 21, if you glance, um, if you have paragraph subheadings, you'll notice that the verses just prior to this are verses on the judgment. And so we get to verse, uh, chapter 21, and I'll read verses 1 through 7. So after judgment, this comes. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. And I apologize. I went to the wrong cross-reference <laughs> to prove the point. That passage was meant to prove the point that our salvation leads to a new creation. Back to where I was. If you would now turn to Matthew. We'll come back here to Revelation in just a moment. Well, have you already flipped away from it? Good. I am supposed to read a bit more here. Boy, I'm really confusing myself. So having spoken of this new creation, the goal, the final goal of our salvation, notice what it says here in verse 8 of Revelation 21. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. That's coming at it from the negative angle. In this new creation, will there be any sin? None at all. No evil in the heart. No twistedness in the soul. It will, will be a place of perfection. Now, flip back to Matthew's gospel, Matthew 13. I'll read to you one of Jesus' parables on the kingdom. If you remember, Matthew chapter 13 is recognized as the kingdom parable chapter. But Matthew 13, verses 36 through 43. Jesus um, a few verses prior to this has given the parable, and now in these verses that I'll read, he'll explain the parable, the parable of the weeds. Then Jesus left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. Jesus answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. 
Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Obviously a lot more to that paragraph than this. But one point is abundantly clear, isn't it? The Bible affirms and reaffirms this truth that the new creation, sometimes we shorthand refer to it as heaven, the glory to come will be the place where righteousness dwells and there is no sin. Now on the one hand, I think for many of us that is a sobering and perhaps even frightening truth because if you think about it, Who of us has any right to enter those pearly white gates? Not in ourselves. And so I know in the end, I'm just reminding you of a truth that you already understand. But I'll read to you from Revelation 22, verses 14 and 15. This is towards the close of the book of Revelation. And there the Apostle John says, Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers, the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. What gives us the right to look forward to enjoying that new creation where righteousness dwells, dipping your robes in the blood of the Lamb through faith? And so Christian, it's a beautiful thing, isn't it? that one day your salvation will be complete. We have a taste of it here, but there's a bitterness that comes with it. Being born again and yet being at war within Christian, one day it will be done. And you will dwell in righteousness with Jesus Christ and like him you will reflect his glory, basking in the perfection of who he is and you will live in perfect obedience to every commandment for all the rest of eternity, and you will love it. You will run with great endurance in obedience to your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It will be a glorious place. The new creation is the place where righteousness dwells. So the second characteristic, if I could gather us back in here, and turn your attention back to Genesis 8. I want to show you this from that text. So I think the first characteristic is clear as an overview. But there's a more specific point that Genesis 8 makes. I want to read to you again a few verses, rereading them, drawing your attention to now this different point. So I'll begin in verse 18. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Let me pause there. This is the first time that Noah sets foot in the new creation. And what's the first thing he does? Verse 20. He built an altar to the Lord, took some of every clean animal, some of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Now, obviously, there's more specific things to understand about that sacrifice. It's actually quite significant. But one general truth stands out here as well, doesn't it? the first thing Noah does in the new creation is worship. 
he gives glory to God, gives him the best that he has, the clean animals, praising him for the redemption that he has experienced. I think it makes a very simple point. The second characteristic we see from this text of the new creation is that it is a place of worship. Keep in mind, um, if, you, if you remember it already, that's, that's great, but if you look at chapter 7, verses 2 and 3 of Genesis, it makes, I believe, a significant point there. The Lord was speaking to Noah, giving him these instructions before the flood ever came. And God said to him, take with you seven pairs of all clean animals. The male and his mate, a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens, also male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. Why seven? Why wasn't one pair enough? Don't you think God's purpose all along in delivering this man, God's purpose in saving Noah all along was that he might worship. That's what the new creation is about. I want to show you a few passages on this as well. I'm going to slow down enough to make sure I'm giving you the right ones. Yes. Please turn in the Old Testament to Isaiah 66. Isaiah is the first prophet. You find it after Psalms. Fairly large book. Turn a couple of pages after the book of Psalms and you should run into it. Isaiah 66, and I'll read to you verses 22 through 23. Now, I know I'm plucking a passage out of the midst of a massive book, but I think this point should stand out clearly here. There the Lord speaking through his prophet Isaiah says, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. In those two set-apart verses, one thing God says about the new creation, you will worship me. Likewise, we see the truth repeatedly in the book of Revelation, don't we? But let's look in Reve just two places in Revelation. See some of the language there. Revelation 14, first of all. I'll read verses 1 through 3. Now, as I do this... Um, I admit that there's some details here that I'll be skimming over. And I'll just let you know beforehand that I understand the 144,000 to be representative of the saved. In any case, let me read these verses to you. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of thunder, the voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Stop there. It's the redeemed who sing. We are saved to sing a song that only we can understand. Not even the angels in heaven can sing this song because they've not experienced the saving grace of God through Jesus Christ. We are saved 
delivered from death into a new creation that we might worship him with the saints in eternity. And then likewise, you see the same in Revelation 22. And since we read this um, earlier in worship, I'll just reread verses 3 through 5. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And I am confronted with the inescapable thought that it will be an endless Sabbath day, so to speak, an endless worship service, an endless gathering of the redeemed. We don't know a whole lot about heaven, but these two things we know. We are saved from death and condemnation and delivered into a new creation where righteousness dwells and where we will worship him for all eternity. So that leaves us with two pretty straightforward applications here at the end. I have one more text. <laughs> Bear with me. Just turn back a little bit to 2 Peter. 2 Peter is just a few short books before Revelation if you get to Hebrews, you've gone too far. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 11 through 14. You've not had the advantage of me putting before you this whole chapter more than once in the study with connection, in connection to Noah. So I commend it to you later as you reflect upon God's word throughout this week. Study Noah's life in connection with this whole chapter. But let me just highlight for our purposes tonight this truth as well. So Second Peter 3, verses 11 through 14. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these... Be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. So let me apply, apply that first characteristic then. The Apostle Peter does it here. This has an impact on the way we live here and now. The new creation is not solely a future idea that we wait and we'll get there when we get there. It should impact your living today. And so, of course, the first application is we need to seek to live lives of holiness, godliness, lives of obedience to the commandments of Christ. Now, don't misunderstand me. I trust you won't. We don't seek to live in obedience to earn the new creation. It's freely given. We seek to live in obedience because we love him, because he has redeemed my soul. I have been set free. I have been brought from death into life. Note a couple of other cross-references. I won't have you turn there, but you might jot them down. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Ephesians 2.10, likewise, Paul says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
If you yearn for heaven, yearn to obey now. And uh, I did this when I preached it previously, and I do think it's valuable. Let me come at it from the negative angle. If, on the other hand, you find that you do not love obedience, that you do not desire to follow the commandments of Christ, I'm not saying that if you struggle, I'm saying if you don't want to, if that's not what controls the way that you try to live, if you do not find the law of God beautiful, sweeter than honey, then you need to understand that you don't want to go to heaven. If you don't want to obey, you don't want to go to heaven. And furthermore, if you don't want to obey, not only do you not want to go to heaven, but you won't. It's a heart that has been made alive together with Christ that has been able to behold him face to face through faith, so to speak, that has seen the glories of, of the Savior, that's the heart that is alive that seeks to live in obedience to Christ. So again, the first thing I urge upon you is to seek to live in righteousness. And if you find yourself in the position that you do not delight in obedience, then I urge you to call upon Christ probably for the first time with sincerity and ask him to save you and he will. Seal me into the ark of salvation, Lord Jesus, and he will. The second application is the second characteristic brought to bear upon you. Second the second application then is that we should seek to live lives of worship now. Now in one sense, that means that has implications for all of life. Hebrews 13, 15 seems to speak of it in more of those terms. Through Christ, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Let's do it continually. And what is it in Romans 12? Let's offer our bodies as living sacrifices to God. So there's a sense in which that should characterize the whole of your life, worshiping him, serving him, and everything that you seek to do. But I'm speaking here more specifically. If you yearn for heaven, then you ought to yearn for this. It's not perfect. It's tainted with your sin and mine still. But this is our foretaste of glory. <laughs> You're thought of it that way. This is heaven on earth, at least as close as we get. The saints gathering together at the call of God through his word to worship him. Why? The Lord our God is good. His mercy is forever sure. His truth at all times firmly stood. That's why we worship. So, again, from the negative angle, if gathering with the saints to worship is not your greatest delight, then you don't want to go to heaven. An unceasing day when we behold Jesus face to face and singing a new song. And of course, you understand where I'm going with this. Furthermore, if you don't delight in worship, not only do you not want to go to heaven, but you won't get there. Here's why. 
Because if worshiping Christ is not your greatest delight, it is simply proof positive that you've not yet seen him, that you've not yet embraced him, that you've not yet tasted what it means to be saved. You've not yet understood the wrath from which you have been delivered by his grace alone. If you find yourself in that position or struggling in that way, then I urge you, look to the cross of Christ. Let that teach you to sing the song of the redeemed. And then you can look forward to an endless day when you will see him and you will praise him with a new song forever and ever. Let's pray.